I wanted again to just say thank you, Nathaniel, for uh, preaching and leading last week. Um, we are now getting back to our series in Acts. So if you have not turned there already, turn to Acts chapter 2. We did a couple sermons in Acts chapter 1, and then we did a little Bible study on the second half of Acts chapter 1. If you missed that, um, we had some good discussion. And yeah, if you want to discuss that, would love an opportunity to do that with you. So holler at me, and uh, yeah, we'll do that. Um, but it wasn't recorded, and so now we're on to chapter 2. Um, yeah, let's just go ahead and read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll uh, come back and start looking at it. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Now, earlier we read from Genesis chapter 11, and maybe at that time you're wondering, why are we reading from Genesis chapter 11? How does this have anything to do with the task, the text at hand? One of the first things that I just want to point out is how amazing it is that God uses scripture to give us an insight into how he is at work redeeming our fallenness, redeeming the things in this world that are difficult, that are broken. So we saw in Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, as the people tried to make a name for themselves, as they tried to do what they could in their own power to build themselves to a point where they could reach up to heaven. And God said, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what I told you to do. This is not how you're supposed to be living your life. And from there, he confused their language. And so how do we have all of these different languages? Well, that's how God did it. And then we find here in Acts chapter 2, this opportunity, this redemption story in just this moment in time where God says, as I pour my spirit out on you, I will come down and I will redeem that brokenness, that lostness, that difficulty with which you may have to proclaim the gospel in your own power. I'm going to give you the ability to do that in a way that you otherwise would not have. And so, 
what we ought to see just, I mean, from the start and overall, if there's, I mean, you know, not much else that you hear as I'm up here today, know that God redeems the brokenness in this world, that, that God gives opportunity in his word for us to see how he corrects wrongs, how he gives grace in the midst of despair, how he brings unity in the midst of diversity. There are a lot of things that we've uh, mentioned in the last couple of times that we've looked at uh, chapter one of Acts that we'll see again here in the beginning of chapter two. But let's just start walking through it and we'll get to these as we kind of go along. So there in verse one says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. So when is Pentecost? Does anybody, anybody know? Any takers out there in the crowd? When is the day of Pentecost? Anybody? Any guesses? Any guesses from the crowd? Come on. There are wrong answers, but... Um, 50. So, so penta meaning five or 50. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> someone was right and someone was wrong in that relationship. Um, that's usually how it goes, right? We can't both be right. <laughs> right. So 50 days um, after uh, Passover really is when it was 50 days after Passover. Um, it was a celebration of the, what was between harvests is what it was. So the celebration of the end of the first harvest, one of the three annual festivals that Jews were supposed to celebrate. And many of them would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, um, this Pentecost. So this would have been, does anybody have any idea how long Jesus would have been away after he ascended before the spirit came? Because if you remember in Acts chapter one, Jesus said, you know, basically be patient and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. How long do you think they had to wait? Is it 10 days? It's close. Yeah. Yeah. So, so probably a little bit less than 10 days. Cause if you kind of do the math and say Passover was when Jesus was crucified a few days later, he was raised. He was there for 40 days. So that's about 42, 43 days. So then if that's 50 days after Passover, then you would assumedly that would have been a week later. Um, so the disciples didn't have to wait for months. They didn't have to wait for years for the spirit. They just really had to wait about a week. But one interesting thing is that they were all together in one place. Now we looked at this when we did our little Bible study in the second half of chapter two, but it is a continual emphasis that Luke wants to make sure that we see as his readers that the people, the early disciples were all, they were all being obedient by having listened to Jesus, by having stayed together where he, told, where he told them to be so that they all together could experience this same thing together. They were all together in one place. I mean, we see it again at the end of chapter two, just the unity that happens. They were all together in one place. And so what happens? How does the spirit come? And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we had some people over last week and um, I learned something new about uh, myself and about other people. One thing I learned was that there are apparently more than five senses 
Um, I don't know if that's common knowledge with us non-medical people or not. Um, it wasn't to me, but apparently there are more than five senses. But one of the things that's interesting about here in this, <laughs> just got a, I got a mean look from someone in the audience who, <laughs> it's okay. It's, um, one of the things that's interesting about this is just the senses that are uh, related to. Now, Luke himself is a physician, so maybe he knew that there were more than five senses, right? Maybe he's trying to help us to see some of just the experience of what it is to experience all these things with our eyes, with our ears, right? They heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind, right? I mean, they're hearing something. They see divided tongues as a fire appear to them and rest on each one of them. Right? I mean, they're able to hear, they're able to speak in a way in which they have not really encountered before. Something that they haven't trained for, something that they haven't experienced up to this point in their life. One of the things that is interesting, again, with going along this line of reasoning of thinking about how God redeems things, how God turns things from the Old Testament experiences that the people of Israel even had in the Old Testament and makes them fresh in the New Testament. So we have a mighty rushing wind, fire appear, voices happening. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have the author of Hebrews giving a a slight account of what happened whenever Moses received the law. And for many people, they consider Pentecost to be also a celebration of the time of God giving the law to Moses, of Moses going up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. And what did the people who were back down, not on the mountain, what did they see happening on the mountain? What did Moses himself encounter on the mountain when he received the law? Well, let me just read from Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to just start in verse 12, and and we'll get to the point I'm talking about. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
some of that reference there is a reference to Moses up on the mountain receiving the word of the Lord, receiving the commands of God. Learning, understanding how to lead God's people. What was expected of God's people? What often is associated in the Old Testament with God is fire. When the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, they were being delivered. When they were being led in the wilderness, what led them? I mean, there was a visible sign that led them. It wasn't just a random, hey, Moses, go here, go there. I mean, God physically manifested his presence in certain ways. And one particular way that he did that, leading the entirety of the people to know when to go and when to stop, where God was taking them, was by day what? What was it? Cloud, yeah, and then by night, what was it? Fire, right? Fire, smoke. I mean, that was what represented so often in the Old Testament, what we have representing God is fire, Moses, and the burning bush, the bush that was not consumed but was lit up. Fire. Moses turned aside from where he was shepherding to see this strange sight. What is this that is happening over here? This is not normal. I haven't seen this before. I've been on this hill, on this mountain several times before, and that's new, and that's unique. Typically, that bush is like some kind of green, and now it's like orange and red and stuff. That's not normal. So, in case we're wondering about what exactly is happening here, this is a display for the disciples of Christ to clearly see and hear in a similar way as people in the Old Testament did, that this is God coming to them and residing with them. And that this was a new and unique event that was occurring, but it was still a way that clearly could be seen that this was God doing this work. This was unusual. This was not something that you would have necessarily expected to happen. I'm sure the people in that room were just, what is, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, you're in a, I mean, we were last week, last Sunday night at the higher ed center, we were there and it started raining. And what do you hear as it's raining? You know, if you're on like a metal roof, I mean, you just kind of start hearing the sound of the rain and sometimes it gets really loud and you're like, wow, man, it's really pouring outside. I mean, you think of, I mean, this past week, right? We had a hurricane hit the U.S. again and, you know, we had a little bit of wind come, but I think we missed most of whatever the outskirts of Ian were. But I I think in different moments, we've, whether it was this past week to a really small extent here in our own lives or maybe the people and the videos that we've seen from Ian, you see the wind, just the powerful wind and the noise that the wind and the rain can make. This is all a way in which God was seeking to show 
his presence with them, and that this was his spirit who was coming to be with them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I've told you all this before, but I'll mention it again because I think it's important for us to realize whether it's just where we live or whether it's just true kind of no matter where you go, we are inundated with people who believe things about Christ and about the Spirit that are not accurate who live among us and who try to get us to come to believe what they believe about the Spirit. So I have a friend at the farmer's market, um, and he knows that I'm a pastor, and he invited me several months back, it was last year, to have coffee with him because he wanted to basically convert me over to Pentecostalism. He wanted to make sure that I had the opportunity to know that I needed to be born again with the Spirit, which was a separate thing from being um, just water baptized, a separate thing from coming to know Christ. And that the way in which I could know that I was baptized with the Spirit, born of the Spirit, was if I spoke in tongues. Like I, I needed to have that, he's telling me, I needed to have that experience in order to prove that the Spirit was with me. And so, one of the things that we need to be careful of is to say that because it happened to someone in Acts means it needs to happen to me in order for me to be legitimate. The fact that these first disciples, as the Holy Spirit came for the first time, in this powerful and new and exciting and totally different way than anything that they were probably expecting, that I have to have the exact same or very similar experience in order to see myself, to know for sure that I am a true disciple. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let me go through real quick, if, if you're taking notes, feel free to write these down. I'll just read them. If you want to follow through, you can, because we're just going to go through Acts a little bit, um, a, little, a little journey of being full of the Spirit and different places where it is mentioned by Luke, because this is an important aspect that Luke, time and time again, uses as a descriptor of people, of disciples in Acts, because it is important. So Acts four twenty nine through 31. This is Peter um, and the believers praying for boldness. It says, And now, Lord, so Acts 4, 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Chapter 7, verses 54 to 55. One of these seven, Stephen, has just given this long explanation of what happened in the Old Testament and how the people of God, Israel, had done the same thing to Jesus as they had done in time and time again in Israel's history. Chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, again speaking of Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Chapter 11, verses 22 through 24. says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. I'll read a bit here just to give some context. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. These are just a few of the instances that we find of Luke recording for us in this story, this history of the early church, of disciples being full of the Holy Spirit. And in none of those occasions did being full of the Holy Spirit also come with speaking in tongues. So, In case you're wondering, was this, is this supposed to be a normal experience of all people who come to faith? To be full of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, does it mean that I have to be able to speak in tongues like these first disciples? I would say, I sure would think, maybe it's an argument from silence, but it's a lot of silence in a lot of different places by the same author. I would say that certainly there would be more discussion in the book of Acts by Luke of speaking in tongues throughout the rest of the book if, in fact, this was supposed to be a regular and common occurrence for all Christians at all times. But it's not. It's not there. It wasn't there. Typically, what is accompanied with 
this description of being full of the Holy Spirit is a speaking of the word of God with boldness. Now, this is what they are doing here in Acts chapter 2. They are speaking the word of God with boldness. They're not just speaking randomly in other languages that are intelligible. They're not just having strange, random conversations, you know, in Spanish and German and, you know, whatever languages we would be familiar with. They're speaking the word of God with boldness. And it's the same thing that speaking the word of God with boldness that we find often, time and time again, when it's told to us that these other people in Acts, like Barnabas, like Stephen, Paul, other disciples, are full of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. I think just keep reading the book of Acts and you can have so many pictures of how it's not just one thing. But if we were going to boil it down to one thing, I think that's what it needs to be. Is to have the word of God and to speak it to someone else boldly. To by faith believe that God has given us his word, his truth, to sanctify us, to make us holy, to equip us, to encourage us, so that we might equip others, so that we might boldly speak to others in order for them to come to know and to understand the truth of who God is and what he's done in Christ, what Christ did for us on the cross, and what that means for our lives. And to do it in such a way that we know that God's word, as he declares time and time again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that he intends to do something productive and positive with his word. One of the things that we see even in Jesus' own life, in his own ministry, at, in Luke's first edition to this, or, or the first uh, volume of his two-volume Luke and Acts. Uh, books is in Luke chapter four, Jesus was baptized in Luke chapter three, and in the beginning of Luke chapter four, it's described to us that Jesus begins his ministry. In this way, Luke chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And then after he was tempted, in verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And what did he do? The next thing he does in Nazareth, in his hometown, is he speaks boldly, he declares boldly the truth of who he is and how he has fulfilled, he is fulfilling these, the prophecy in Isaiah. What we need to understand is that the work that we are doing as Christians now, is 
completely powerless and really, I would say, in many regards, useless. If we are doing things apart from the Spirit, that usefulness in ministry means fullness in the Spirit. And when I say that, in a place that's around here, like I said, that, that I personally have encountered, and that I know, I'm sure you have encountered in different ways, is that we are inundated with this idea that being full of the Spirit means this, and it means that. And so I want to caution you against having a false understanding of being full of the Spirit. But I also want to caution us to not go so far away from, to not be so afraid of how other people have, have turned what it means to be full of the Spirit and to neglect our need and dependence of the Spirit in our own lives. So don't go so far away from these people that you don't agree with and these people that we don't align with theologically so that we are never seen as coming anywhere close to being so excited by the work of the Spirit or being so dependent on the evidences of the Spirit in our life that we neglect dependence on the Spirit. Because if we neglect dependence on the Spirit, then we are doing the opposite of what Jesus commanded these first disciples to do. And we are working in a power that is our own. And if we're working in a power that is our own and not of God, then the work that we're doing is in all likelihood not going to bear any fruit. It's not going to bear any fruit for us personally We're not going to see the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control that we ought to and ought to want to see in our own lives personally. And it's also not going to bear fruit by seeing disciples made around us. If we're not dependent on the Spirit, we are depending on our own power, and we are doing the opposite of what Jesus has commanded these first disciples to do and what we really ought to continue in obedience to. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. What is the power for? It's to be witnesses. So maybe, maybe some of the reason why we don't experience the positive success that we desire to see, that we desire to have, as individuals, maybe even as a church, is because we are not depending on the Spirit in ways that we ought to. We are not seeking God through prayer as these early disciples did in the second half of chapter 1, and as they continue doing at the end of chapter 2, by devoting themselves to prayer, by waiting until God does something, by doing what they can in obedience to Christ, what they're capable of, but knowing that all the while their obedience is not what is going to bring about the work of God fully. It might provide an avenue, it might provide an opportunity, 
but the work is still God's to be done. And if we're saying by our actions, maybe by our lack of prayer, maybe by our lack of dependence in whatever capacity on the Spirit, that we can convince other people of the truth of the gospel, that just because we speak boldly, confidently, that just because we do it in such a way that is in the realm of apologetics clear and without any argument to be able to stand against us, that we have accomplished the mission, that we have foiled all of the falsehood that is around us. And maybe sometimes we're failing to properly recognize the fact that it is our job to work and that it is our job to be obedient. But it's the Spirit's job to do what only He can do, and that is to actually bring people to saving faith. So one of the things that I think we ought to see is that there was an obedience here. There was an obedience by these early disciples. There was a unity involved here that they were all together and they had all been praying. Maybe if it was just if it was just a week. It was still at least a week of intentional expectation in prayer that God was going to do something among them that had been promised. And that they found that unity through their obedience to Christ's command to them. And so as this this book that we've been reading the last few months, a book that we ought to continue coming back to in many regards to give us some good opportunities to understand and know how we can live out this Christian life in the spiritual disciplines by forming situations and opportunities for the Spirit to actually do work because we're inviting Him to do the work because we're, we're doing the work that's been asked of us. We are submitting ourselves to be patient. We're submitting ourselves to grow in prayer. We're submitting ourselves to, to know what to speak because we've read the word of God, because we've committed ourselves to understanding it and studying it, because we've sat alone with God and we've said, God, I need to hear from you in my life. Help me to know how to apply the words on these pages so that in my own life, I can live out this truth that I profess, that I claim to have. We ought to be a people who are marked by obedience. But we're not marked by obedience in the sense that we see obedience as the way in which God loves us, as the way in which God responds to us, as the way in which we twist God's hand to do what we want him to do and need him to do in certain moments of our life.
I mean, have you ever have you ever given someone instructions? Maybe you're a boss, maybe you're a parent. And you gave clear instructions. Hey, I need you to go do this. And immediately they turn and go the opposite way of where you think they should go. Right? Or where you know they should go. And you're just thinking, what just happened here? Was I not clear enough? Or were they just not listening? Like, what, where'd the breakdown in communication happen here? And you think to yourself, what I just told them to do is important. Like, I'm not just telling them to do it just to have them do it, just to watch them be miserable for a few minutes. I'm not doing it because I'm not willing to do it. I've got other priorities and things that I need to be doing. And so I need them to do this other stuff in order to get this accomplished so that we together can be doing things and going towards the same goal. One of the things that happens if we don't get in line with the commands of Christ in our life is that we begin to butt up against those who are following Christ. When we talk about the unity that we see in chapter 1, here at the beginning of chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, throughout so much of Acts, where the church was of one mind, of one accord, of they were in agreement. They were together. They were united. So many times we see that because they were in obedience. And so maybe, maybe one of the reasons why sometimes in our own life we're not full of the Spirit is because we're not obedient. It's because we have come across the clear commands of Christ. Hey, I need you to go do this. This is what you're supposed to be doing. These are things that you're not supposed to be doing. And yet we we turn right back around, start walking the other way, and Jesus is standing there like, was I not clear? Like, did I not speak this Loudly enough, or did I not use enough good illustrations? Did I not say it in different ways so that they could, you know, at least kind of put them all together or maybe speak to this person who's, you know, as good with stories and learns in stories? Maybe this person who learns, you know, logically and just kind of an order of. And so I wonder sometimes just why? What what keeps us from being full of the Spirit? What's so amazing is what happens here in, in Acts chapter 2 is that their obedience to wait for the promised Holy Spirit then provides this opportunity for together this 100 plus people, if not more, to all together have the Holy Spirit come upon them 
so that visually, audibly, in so many senses, be clear that what's happening among them, this is special and unique, and certainly this is God among us, and now God residing in us and with us. And that we're able to now speak in intelligible dialects and languages that us uneducated, normal people have never studied before. We've never even heard half of these. We don't know what's coming out of our mouths. I need someone to interpret what I'm saying because I have no idea what I'm saying. And all these people from all these different regions are saying, wait a second, this is unusual because these people don't have the ability to sound like linguists. They're not educated. And they're from a part of the country like they should have this twang and draw and, you know, sound really strange whenever they're trying to speak this foreign language to them. And God uses it to say, no, this is something interesting and unique. And then we get to the end of this little section here in chapter 2. And we'll end talking with this. is Just because God promises us that he will be with us, just because God gives us his spirit, doesn't mean that we won't have those who come against us. Doesn't mean that we won't have opposition, that there won't be rejection. This is a common theme in the book of Acts, this rejection. We read some of it in the instances where we read about the believers and Stephen who were speaking boldly the word of God and they were, literally Stephen was killed. I mean, in chapter four, they were, they were beaten. But they were let go and then Stephen gets up a couple chapters later and he's like, Hey guys, here's the deal. Here's, here's who you are. Here's what's been happening. And you kind of, you know, have fallen into the same trap that your fathers did. And they're like, don't you talk about our fathers like that. Um, and they found rejection. Maybe some of the reason why we're hesitant to seek to be full of the Holy Spirit is because alongside of that comes the opportunity for opposition and rejection. I mean, it's, Peter uses this as sort of the, the linchpin to get into his sermon at Pentecost from what Luke records for us. That verse 13, but others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. There's no way that these people are able to do this. There's no way that this is really happening. There's no way that God is with these people. Their babbling has got to just be the fact that they're drunk. And so what we encounter sometimes is opposition. And maybe we've encountered that in the past and it gives us pause and concern 
Because in our mode of self-preservation, we're saying, I don't want to look bad in front of those people. I don't want to have to deal with the consequences of being known as that guy in front of them. And so we just kind of lay back, stay in the background, let things continue to kind of happen, all the while knowing, man, I've missed an opportunity. But if we don't recognize from the outset that in this life as Christians, as those who are seeking to be full of the Spirit, that we are going to receive and encounter rejection and opposition, then we are setting ourselves up to be disappointed in ways that we don't need to be. To be discouraged to an extent that otherwise we might have been able to prepare ourselves for. So often in Scripture, it talks about perseverance. Talks about finishing the race. And and we've got to be prepared to do that in the midst of people who are working actively against us. That there is the spirit in this world and in our lives doing his work in us and through us. But then there is also... A spirit of this world. There's also a devil and his minions who are seeking to destroy the work of God in our life and in what's going on around us. So we need to consider whether or not we are preparing our minds and our hearts our souls for the fact that this was not uncommon and that this was experienced from the outset of the work of the Spirit in the early church. So what what can we do as people now in Abingdon and around the Tri-Cities to be a people who are full of the Spirit, I think we ought to study God's word to know who the Spirit is and and what he does. We ought to apply the truth to our own lives. We ought to obey. We ought to see the commands of Christ given to us as his disciples and say, these are the things that I need to be known for, things I need to be actively pursuing and And these are the things that I need to be actively staying away from, committed to not doing. And I need to be ready to come into situations where people are against me and to still trust that what God is doing 
through me is greater than and better than any self-preservation that I might otherwise naturally gravitate to. That it is worth it. And that it is what I have been called to do as a disciple of Christ. And that he's enough. That he's enough. So I pray that this week we can consider what does it mean to be full of the Spirit? And maybe kind of have on repeat in your mind to be useful in ministry is to be full of the Spirit. In order to be useful, I need to be full and full of the Spirit. So how can I pray for that to happen? How can I seek for that to be the case in my life? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to to study it, to consider what it is that you're doing through your spirit. We pray that you would make us people who are full of your spirit, who depend upon your spirit through prayer, through the spiritual disciplines, through the study and reading of your word, through meditation of your word, through silence and solitude with your word, through the proclamation, the bold evangelism that you have called us to, speaking the truth to others who are already in Christ, that we might build them up and encourage them. We might step out in faith and do things that otherwise we would naturally not be inclined to do, but because we know that you have called us to depend on your spirit and to be bold and courageous and to trust you, that we're able to give you the situations to see the work that only you can do, to see lives changed, to see hearts made new, to see people come to faith, see people baptized, to see our own hearts grow in the fruit of the Spirit, to see the lives of those around us grow in godliness. And would you do that? Would you begin that this week in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.